Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Stephen E. Sachs, Professor of Law at Duke University School of Law. We will discuss his article, Finding Law, which was just published in the California Law Review. So welcome to the program, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> yeah, a, the pleasure is all mine. I read your paper a few weeks ago, and then I've reread it since then because I enjoyed it so much. And it's both an incredibly like provocative and thoughtful paper, but also really funny. So I, I, I commend you on your excellent work. And I commend the editors at California Law Review who did a really nice job with the typography as well, I thought. Yes, though, um, I, I have to say I was very disappointed that California publishes in Times New Roman. Ah, oh, well, you know, you can't have everything you want. <laughs> it's It still looks good. It still looks good. Um, so, so Stephen, I, I wanted to start this conversation by, you know, observing that sort of the premise of your article is that it's possible for judges to find law rather than than make law. And so I was wondering if you could explain for listeners who might not necessarily be legal scholars or or lawyers why that what what that means and why it's so controversial for you to say that. Sure thing. So that view wasn't always controversial. There was a time when it was thought that the job of a judge was to find the law rather than to make it to apply pre-existing legal standards to a case that came before them. And that view came under pressure uh, to some extent from the academy and to some extent from practice. Um, People were skeptical that there was this thing to be found, which was the law somehow distinct from the decisions of courts and the actual actions of judges. And in practice, there was the worry in the United States uh, for particular reasons having to do with the structure of the federal system and the relationships between federal courts and state courts, that the law that federal judges were identifying was more hostile to uh, plaintiffs, more hostile to individuals, more friendly to corporate defendants, and so on. And it became a very intense political issue. Um, in 1938, there was a famous case, Erie Railroad Company versus Tompkins, which held that uh, federal courts, when deciding issues of state law, should look to the interpretations that state judges had given and should look to the assessments that state courts had given, treating those courts as if they established the law of the state rather than as if they were just you know, good indicators of what the law of the state might be, even on Mm. topics that were thought to be handled by a general common law that was applied throughout the United States and indeed uh, even across the water in England. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So is it it fair to say then that there's sort of like an epistemic kind of epistemic and, and normative question sort of bound up in one in the sense of like, there's a question of like, what is it? like meaningful to ask about judges finding law and then also a question about like whether they should be doing whatever that is in the first place. Right. You might even say there are three questions. There's the, I don't know whether to call it metaphysical question of, is there some Mm. law out there for judges to find? 
Um, there's the epistemic question of how good are they at finding it? What kind of mistakes are they going to make? And then there's the normative question of do we want to do any of this anyway? Um, mm. Why should we have unwritten law? Why shouldn't we just restrict ourselves to ordinances and statutes and regulations and the sorts of written texts that supply a lot of what ordinary people think is the law? The idea of unwritten law isn't something that necessarily occurs to people. You think the law is somewhere in a big book that says the law on the cover. Hmm. Um, but the, you know, once you go to law school within the legal world, the idea that there are norms and principles that are part of the law, even though they don't have a particular source in some written document, the idea, let's say that there's a defense of duress to crimes or that the interest typically goes with the principle. I mean, these are, uh, principles that everyone learns in law school, but that don't have a single textual source. Okay, so you mentioned Erie Railroad v. Tompkins, and you, you 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 spend a fair amount of time kind of thinking about that case in historical context in your paper. So, so I'd like to return to it um, later in our conversation, but but I wanted to start by sort of identifying Erie as sort of one of the kind of pivotal cases in what came to be known as as legal realism right which seems like the kind of the place where this tension between finding and making law kind of conceptually um really kind of came came to the fore and if i'm right with that like on your reading why is it that legal legal realism objected to the idea that or project of judges finding law and kind of insisted that what judges are really doing is is making rather than finding? So I think there are two strands there. One is um, more of a what's called a positivist strand, um, the idea that law isn't just sort of decreed in the sky somewhere. It depends on individual societies. And typically it depends on those societies positing or laying down particular rules of law. Uh, It's not necessarily limited to that. I would call myself a a legal positivist, but um, the, the main strand of positivism was to look for law coming from a particular authority, such as a sovereign or that sovereign's court. Um, And if that's your view of things, then when you, have a principle like the rule about duress, you'll say, okay, well, what makes that the law? It must be because some sovereign commanded it. And that means either it's found somewhere in the legislature or some court was authorized to declare um, that rule as being the law and did so. The other strand is uh, a legal realist strand in the sense that, um, you know, Justice Holmes, who uh, was not on the court for Erie, but who wrote a very influential dissents that guided the majority opinion um, is often described as a legal realist. And he argued that uh, law was a prophecy of what the courts would do. Um, when you are in a courtroom, when you have a client, you want to tell them what the court's going to end up doing to them. That's what's important. And so the uh, realist take on law was to say that law is what the courts do. And if law is what the courts do, then it's not principles that might be out there in society. Um, It's not unwritten rules. It's just decisions and what follows from those decisions. Right, right. So so one of the things I thought was really kind of interesting and a little, almost a little cheeky about your paper is the way that you like really explicitly argue that you're not talking about what judges are necessarily doing or what judges have to do, 
but really only about whether or not it's possible or meaningful to talk about judges finding law in in the first place. So 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 maybe you could dig into that for us a little bit. Like if a judge is going to go about finding law, where where would they look for that and and what would they do? What does it mean for a judge to find law? Right. So it sounds kind of uh strange and spooky. Um Holmes made fun of the idea of there being some brooding omnipresence in the sky um, that the judge would um, just look at or stumble over or somehow become aware of. But the first part of the paper argues that, in fact, finding customary standards is something that we do all the time in all sorts of areas of normal life. So when we are um, choosing what words to use and making decisions about grammar, There is no grammar statute that lays out what all the rules are. There's no one dictionary that lays out how everything has to be spelled. These are just social customs that society more or less coalesces around. And we're able, in a lot of circumstances, to spell words correctly and speak in relatively standard, formal ways. Um, And we all come to the same point there. We, you know, there are people who have different views about grammar, there are um, mistakes that get made. But by and large, it's perfectly possible to have an AP English test that tests people on how well they can write standard English. Uh, Likewise with fashion, people have all sorts of norms of how to get dressed in the morning, but nonetheless, they can generally identify what would or wouldn't be out of place at an important business meeting. And the same goes for other areas of etiquette and games and so on. So if you're trying to figure out what the rules of poker are, you could look in something like Hoyle, but Hoyle is not the U.S. code. It's just one person's book describing what the general standard is. And when you're trying to figure out what is the rule here, does three of a kind beat two pair or not, that's a social fact. It's something about what people do in society, what they believe. And we find out about that by looking around and interrogating social practice, not necessarily by looking to some individual authoritative official source. So when we're talking about kind of social rules and and social norms, it seems like some of them can be more, more definite than others. And that, you know, in some cases, at least there's room for a certain degree of uncertainty, sometimes a, a fair amount of uncertainty or even disagreement about what the rules of the road might be, as it were. Um, when it comes to finding law, can can judges, is it possible or meaningful for judges to like who are finding law to, to disagree about what the law is? And, and if so, is that like a problem for your theory or is that something your theory um, anticipates and incorporates? So it's absolutely possible for judges to disagree about what the law is on a particular point. And indeed, every common law decision where you see a majority in a dissent features that. I think what's uh, The problem with focusing on that case, though, is that it looks past all of the very extensive agreement we see in a lot of other places. So again, to return to a language analogy, it's true that there are disagreements about whether there really is a rule that you're not supposed to end a sentence with a preposition or whether it really is okay or not to use they as a third person singular, for example. I mean, these are things that people go different directions on, even in um, official, formal uh, writing and speech. But nonetheless, there's an enormous amount of agreement. There are an enormous number of cases where we spell words the same way, we deploy verbs the same way, and um, 
it would be very obvious that a mistake had been made if someone did anything different. And I think the same is often true for law. There's an enormous amount of law that is absolutely uncontested, that nobody disagrees about, that if you go to your lawyer in their office, they will just tell you, sorry, you don't have a case here. Um, I can go out to the Duke Law parking lot and look over the cars and know that I don't own any of them except for one. Um, and that's a that's a conclusion of law I'm very confident in. And uh, so, yeah, there are going to be areas of uncertain rules and uncertain applications of rules. And there's going to be a very extensive area of agreement on what the rules are. The idea that judges can find the law doesn't mean that they are going to be successful at finding it in a uniform way in every case. It's not a right answers thesis. It's just a claim that there's an awful lot of law out there that has this form that is unwritten and that judges and other people in the legal system, lawyers, private citizens as well, are capable of finding. Yeah, I really liked your analogy to the way that we think about language, especially because it just struck me that, you know, to the extent we can meaningfully have a disagreement about, you know, whether whether and when we should be uh, prescriptivists as opposed to descriptivists is like directly sort of reflective of the kind of distinction that that you're making. I and mean, it struck me that like prescriptivism is kind of like a version of making law, right? Saying like, even if some people do it another way, you really have to do it this way. And then when it comes to descriptivism, it's like, sometimes it's hard to know exactly what the right description is, but but we can distinguish between better and worse descriptions or kind of argue over which description is accurate and which one isn't. Is that a fair comparison? So I actually see prescriptivism and descriptivism as flip sides of the same coin. Whenever we're trying mm. to say what our linguistic norms are, we're trying to say what prescriptive norms are descriptively currently in use. So when we say that, you know, the word fain was common in Shakespeare's time, but is not so today, or, you know, Chaucer would use this construction, but we don't. We're describing a change in norms, so that's a description. But at any given time, those norms are prescriptive. If you, you know, try and fill out your AP language exam and use Chaucerian English, you're going to get a bad score. Um, so that, you know, we will not say let a thousand flowers bloom. We're going to say, no, you did it wrong. Um, mm. Likewise, when uh, my my uh, younger daughter is four years old, you know, if I tell her that it's went rather than goad, I am, you know, giving her a prescriptive instruction. You know, no, you can't say it that way. You have to say it this way. But that's clearly consistent with the prescriptive norms that are currently in use. I'm not trying to reform. Uh, I'm trying to reform her practice. I'm not trying to reform the practice of society at large. And so I think that um, there is a real difference between judges trying to change what the existing rule is as best they can determine it and just trying to assess mm. and apply that rule. Ah, okay, okay. So that that makes a lot of sense to me, and and it it did strike me as well that in relation to sort of the theoretical way of thinking about finding law you were describing, I mean, there are many social and even legal circumstances where it seems like what we're trying to do as kind of legislatures or quasi legislatures is find law 
as well. And it seems like if, if legislatures can do it, then surely judges can as well. I'm thinking of things like, for example, like the UCC, right? Where the idea is for their rules to sort of reflect commercial practice um, or something like, you know, plagiarism norms in a university context where, you know, the rules of the institution in relation to that practice are intended to reflect a sort of background set of social principles. And like, you know, you could get it wrong if you were to write the the plagiarism description or plagiarism policy in the wrong way. It, 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 am, am I Am I understanding your sort of theoretical position correctly? I think so. Um, it's certainly the case that uh, people who are trying to lay down norms often want to know what the norms are to begin with. Um, so whether you're drafting a plagiarism policy, that's, you know, you could just write plagiarism and hope that people know what you mean, or you could try to define it. And if you try to define it, are you trying to capture the existing norms? Or are you trying to supplant them and put down something new? Um, the example I give in the paper is if you had a statute that said, you know, this kind of dispute will be solved by a game of poker. Um, you know, it's certainly at the point where you're actually playing the game, you might say, well, what are the rules? The statute doesn't say what they are, hmm. but we just have to figure that out based on social practice. And the statute didn't say poker with an asterisk in the sense of, you know, poker as judges will subsequently figure it out or poker as determined by the election commission. They just mean poker, the game that everybody plays. And the only way to find out what that is, is to look around at social practice, as opposed to think that it's already contained within some kind of uh, written legal source. Okay. So in your paper, you spend a considerable amount of time talking about the Erie v. v. Tompkins case. And so I was wondering if you could explain you know, uh, in a little bit more kind of granular detail, sort of like, why is that case so important to this, to this discussion? Like, what happened in Erie v. Tompkins that sort of posed this question or sort of made this distinction between uh, making and finding laws so, so salient in a kind of jurisprudential or kind of legal theoretical context? Sure thing. So I, I enjoyed reading your article on uh, Harry James Tompkins, the uh, plaintiff in Erie, um, who was injured by a uh, rail car of the Erie Railroad Company, though exactly how he was injured might be a matter of dispute. Um, and he argued, um, he sued in federal court in New York and argued that when he was walking along the track in Pennsylvania, um, he was allowed to be there by the general law, um, the general common law, which was the law in Pennsylvania as well. And um, so therefore, he was a licensee and the railroad owed him some duty of care. And when their rail car injured him, um, he uh, deserved to be compensated. The railroad argued, no, according to recent Pennsylvania decisions, he was a trespasser, not a licensee, and therefore uh, didn't. In, wasn't entitled to any compensation. So that might seem like just an ordinary uh, accident case. And what made it very significant was this discrepancy between the general practice as the federal court saw it and the practice of the courts of Pennsylvania. Now, often this disagreement, Erie in general, is described as a conflict between the general common law applied in federal courts and the state common law of Pennsylvania. But that that, that's how the, the court described it. But that isn't how the generations before Erie necessarily saw it. So uh, Justice Story writing Swift v. Tyson 
would have said, this is a case about Pennsylvania law. It's not federal law. There's no federal statute here. There's nothing in the Constitution about this. It's just a case of Pennsylvania tort law. But Pennsylvania has adopted the general common law as part of its own. Its its law incorporates by reference the general common law. And so for Justice Story, the question would have been, has Pennsylvania abrogated that general common law with some statute? Have they somehow told courts, stop applying the general practice? Or do they have some sort of special local usage on which they deliberately depart from the general rule? Um, You know, sort of as if uh, with the poker statute, if they said, oh, no, no, we mean Pennsylvania poker, not the regular game that everyone else plays. Do they have some special local custom there that is distinct from everything else? Because if neither of those things is true, then all we have is federal courts and Pennsylvania courts both trying to assess What's the general practice here? What is the rule for people walking next to trains? And in that case, there's no particular reason why the federal court and the Pennsylvania court should pay, uh, you know, should, should defer to each other. Each of them are, they're both trying to solve the same problem and they might disagree. And if they do, that's unfortunate, but there's no reason that one of them just has to listen to what the other one says about the topic. By contrast, um, Justice Holmes and then eventually Justice Brandeis writing for the court in Erie was of the view that um, this idea of a general common law that's outside of any state but somehow obligatory within it is just a, an illusion, a fallacy. It doesn't really exist. And so all we have here is state law, and state law can be uh, declared by the legislature or it can be declared by the courts. And whenever the courts make a statement of law, they are declaring what the law of the state is in Pennsylvania. And so therefore, the federal court must defer to them on any issue that's within the state's uh, legislative competence. Um, Their rules, their reasoning essentially is that because it's impossible for judges to find some tradition that extends beyond state borders, it just doesn't exist. Uh, all they could be doing is applying an internal Pennsylvania rule. And as to that, the Pennsylvania courts know better what it is and we should just follow them. So their reasoning was very much tied up with this jurisprudential commitment that there is no general law and there can't be any because whenever judges make a decision, they're essentially making the law of the state. Right. So one of the things I thought was really kind of provocative in your paper was what you pointed out. I mean, it seems like the sort of background sort of principle in in Erie is the idea that judges should no longer conceptualize what they're doing as finding law, but rather always as understanding judges as making law and sort of thinking about law in those kind of positivistic, like, um, you know, the the judges sort of decide what the law is going to be going forward kinds of ways. But you point out that actually under Erie, federal courts have to find law all the time, right? Yeah. Every time they apply Pennsylvania law, they have to figure out what the law of Pennsylvania is, and they're not supposed to make it for themselves. They're so They're not supposed to say, you know, what would I do if I were the Pennsylvania Supreme Court? They're supposed to say, what would the Pennsylvania Supreme Court actually do? And in order to answer that question, they're they're in part making a, a raw prediction, but in part they're making inferences from other cases and comparing the reasoning of different opinions. And they're doing something that looks an awful lot like finding the custom of Pennsylvania, except they're not allowed to call it that because that would sound too much like doing general common law. 
Um, what they have to say is they're they're doing a a uh, prediction of what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court would do. Um, now th- that raises some really weird questions. So one of them is, and this is something that's come up in other work. I don't think it's addressed in this paper. You know, what if you know the Pennsylvania courts are corrupt? What if you know that Al Capone has them all in his pocket? Um, does that mean that your eerie guess is supposed to predict a corrupt answer? Um, is that what you say in the opinion, or do you try mm. and come up with whatever crazy rationale? the uh, Pennsylvania courts would then come up with in order to reach the result that they've been bribed to reach. Normally, we don't think that's the federal court's job. But if not, maybe that suggests that uh, what they're supposed to be doing here is not quite following uh, every jot and tittle of the Pennsylvania courts. The second thing that's interesting is, why the heck are we talking about Pennsylvania? We uh, Erie was filed in a New York court. Now, of course, the facts happened in Pennsylvania. And ordinary conflicts doctrine would say that the law to be applied is Pennsylvania law. But what kind of ordinary contract doctrine are we working with? In a later case called Claxon, the Supreme Court said that following Erie, a federal court sitting in New York is supposed to do what New York state courts would do on choice of law questions. But that's not at all clear uh, from uh, history or the Rules of Decision Act or anything else. I mean, that talks about applying the law of the states in cases where it applies. Uh, so it's entirely possible, on my view, that federal courts would look at the general common law of conflict of laws to figure mm. out which state's law they have to apply, even in cases when they know they have to apply the decision of a particular state court. <laughs> okay, okay. So yeah, I mean, I just found that observation particularly compelling because it seems like you have to do a lot of hand-waving to pretend like federal courts aren't effectively doing law finding under those circumstances effectively when especially when they're like there's no state supreme court or even state lower court decisions like convincingly addressing the question before the federal court i mean there's a reason we have like certification procedures and so on right Right. And those are relatively recent, I think. I don't think certification was as easily available um, in earlier eras. And um, if you don't have that option and you have to decide what would essentially be a case of first impression in Pennsylvania, you are doing something that looks a lot like looking at the traditions of uh, law in Pennsylvania and coming up with an answer. And if that's possible, if that's not an impossible task, then why can't you do the same thing for the United States as a whole, or indeed for the entire Anglo-American common law tradition. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking a lot about the kind of ontological and epistemological questions. What about the normative concerns? I mean, are there sort of normative strengths and weaknesses of making versing versus finding finding law? I mean, it seems like under some circumstances, finding law might be vulnerable, say, to things like replicating hierarchies or discrimination and so on, to the extent that, you know, it provides an avenue that encourages courts to kind of think about the status quo rather than what things ought to be like. I think that's absolutely true. And one of the uh, points I try to make in the paper is that when you're finding what the law is, that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be something good. Um, the law might be terrible. And in a lot of places and a lot of times it has been. If you're trying to assess, you know, what was the law in 1860, it was pretty lousy. And, um, you know, nonetheless, there might be reasons why a legal system might occasionally have you do that. Um, just as when you're trying to use existing norms 
of language or of dress. Um, you know, the, the, a good example would be the reformation to gender pronouns and so on. These are things that are very much fraught. I mean, they carry moral import. They're not just silly customs. Um, and there are plenty of customs all over the world that are both morally abhorrent and are very much enforced with violence. So there's, there's, you know, no, no claim here that this stuff is uh, milk toast. It's just the argument that in particular situations, the law might require us to look and see what that is. And that does have some normative benefits. I mean, I, this is not a brief for finding law. It's merely noting that this is possible, but there are reasons that aren't crazy for why societies might do this. One of them is just because they want the legislature to be in the driver's seat and they don't want the legislature to have a moving target. They want the courts to have a certain job of applying pre-existing standards. And when there is occasion for the law to be changed, the legislature will get off its stuff and change it. Um, and when there isn't occasion for the law to be changed, the legislature won't do it. So you'll have some, you know, in our system, democratic uh, deliberation on whether the law should change, and it'll be done wholesale as opposed to having individual cases that are only argued with individual parties, um, you know, where the, the court doesn't have a sense of the full ramifications of each um, decision uh, actually ending up changing the law. So there are some reasons why you might want to do this. Um, but again, the paper is not a brief for saying, you know, finding law is great. It's just saying that finding law is possible. And that means that we have to decide whether we want to do it or not. Part of the problem is that the, the general rhetoric that finding law is impossible, that the common law method just is courts deciding to change the law, um, as they go along. Um, that idea makes, you know, the, the possibility of legislatures being in the driving seat sort of off the menu. Mm -hmm. So, so Stephen, the the papers deservedly gotten a lot of attention and provoked a lot of conversation. And I can't help but wonder. I mean, are there comments or observations or reactions people have had that you found particularly interesting, particularly compelling? Things that have kind of caused you to kind of think differently about future projects at all? Yeah, so, I think um, two things. One is that. I was taken a little bit by surprise by um, how many people find it entirely plausible to have the view that whenever a court renders a decision, it's making the law. That always struck me as a little bit odd, frankly. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that when the Fourth Circuit and the Third Circuit disagree about search and seizure law, that doesn't mean that the Fourth Amendment actually requires different things in Maryland or Delaware. It just means that the courts do. And if you're in a lower court, you might have to act as if the Fourth Circuit or the Third Circuit knows what they're doing, just like you might have to act as if um, a prior ruling that has preclusive effect on whether the light was green or red, let's say, um, was correct. I mean, it's just, you know, your your job is to pretend that the prior ruling is right, not to assume that it, not, not to, to establish that it really is. Um, nonetheless, a lot of people seem to be persuaded, and I think because lawyers generally practice in lower courts, they generally practice in courts that are bound by relatively strict rules of precedent. And so for them, the fourth or the third circuit having said so is, you know, as good authority as if the constitution said it itself. I mean, why would you need anything different? Um, you know, to, to my mind, I, I think the two are very clearly different, but uh, a lot of people uh, found that surprising. I think the second area where I've um, 
been interested in reactions is the question of sort of what next. Um, what do we do? You know, if if I'm if I'm right that that there's something wrong with Erie, um, how how bad is it, and where do we go from here? Um, and I think there, you know, I'm hoping to do more work on the common law and the federal system as time goes on. But I think there are really two takeaways. One is that when it comes to state common law, at this point, a lot of states seem to have adopted the rule, and it seems to be pretty well established in the state's customary law that their courts get to make new rules for the state. Um, if that's the case, you know, certainly if the, fed- if the state constitution said so, um, the federal courts wouldn't necessarily intervene. That's not their choice. They don't make state law. Um, there might be some due process or ex post facto problems with that, um, but I haven't fully thought through them. Um, but it's entirely possible, at least at a glance, that the you know practice for state common law might be roughly the same. Where I think things would be very different is federal common law. So the even on the same day as Erie, the court in another case, Hinderleiter, had an interstate water apportionment case. And it couldn't say that the correct rule here was going to be the law of either state. No state just gets to say, we get all of the water from this river that runs along our border. Um, and yet there's no federal statute here. So what kind of law are you going to use? Of old, they would have used general common law. That would have been a pretty easy um, decision to make. So the court decided to invent a new category of federal common law, which is not general common law, but is okay because the federal courts made it. And they have taken that and run with it. It's a little less uh, little less exuberant nowadays than it used to be, but you still get decisions like Boyle where uh, the court essentially invented a, a federal government contractor defense as a matter of federal common law. And I think one takeaway from this paper is that that really isn't kosher, that um, the federal courts were not given legislative authority of that kind. And so all they can do is to apply pre-existing law that might include the general common law, it might be available for the court's use in cases where no state law mandates a different result. Um, but in, to my mind, a lot of federal common law might have to go out the window um, or at least be very much reframed um, and much the, the exercise would be much more one of looking to existing practice rather than laying down whatever rule the court thinks is best. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on the program, Stephen. I mean, I found this paper like really insightful and provocative, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing where you take this project next. Thank you. I really appreciate it. In this symposium, my part is only to sit in silence, to express one's feelings as the end draws near is too intimate a task. But I may mention one thought that comes to me as a listener in. The riders in a race do not stop short when they reach the goal. There is a little finishing canter before coming to a standstill. There is time to hear the kind voice of friends and to say to oneself, the work is done. But just as one says that, the answer comes, the race is over. But the work never is done while the power to work remains. The canter that brings you to a standstill need not be only coming to rest. 
It cannot be while you'll still live. But to live is to function. That is all there is in living. And so I end with a line from a Latin poet who uttered the message more than 1,500 years ago. Death, death clucks my ear and says, live, I am coming. <laughs>